I hope that uh, there's some caution and trepidation that I have today with this sermon because um, I don't know how many of you have already listened to Ben's sermon from last week, if you were here or not, but if you haven't, cross point, listen, if you haven't listened to that sermon, you need to. Um, you need to really understand what that message was. You need to listen to it and the implications of it. Ben kind of launched us into two or three weeks here of getting the gospel right. And so last week's message will inform and affirm this week's message. I hope this week's message will inform and clarify last week's message. So if you haven't, even after today, listen to that message last week on getting the gospel right on what is the gospel. Um, today, this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 4 has got social commentary in it. Paul is addressing what's happening around the church there and in the church there. And either among this church where Timothy is or around it. And there's some social commentary. And so this sermon will have some social commentary in it. Now here's where I want you to be be cautious. Anytime we are preaching on getting the gospel right. Good doctrine. And there's commentary on what we're hearing around us, maybe even among others who profess Christ. It can very easily sound like um, we're right and we've got it figured out. And nobody else has got it figured out. But that's not what we're saying and I hope you don't hear that today. What I hope you hear is an elder pastor preacher who's scared, not fearful, but scared and adamant and groaning for this people to get it right and not be deceived and not be lied to and not believe lies, but to trust Jesus. And in order to do that, we have to make sure we get it right. The caution, the warning, the teaching today is for Crosspoint, for us with commentary of what's happening around us to inform that warning, okay? So I hope that that's clear today. I know Ben shared some of that last week, but that's, that's where my trepidation is today, and I hope you will temper what you hear from me and that the Spirit will help me in that. So let's pray now and ask Him to help me and help us hear this message from Him. Spirit, I need your help. You are the helper. I need your help in communicating clearly what Paul uh, is saying here to Timothy, what Timothy is hearing and saying and doing, that we would hear what you are saying via this writer. Father, it is, um, we are in odd times. Uh, surrounded by lots of churches and professing Christians. And I pray, God, that your gospel and Jesus would be lifted up today in this sermon. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We're going to read the first ten verses here together, and then we'll, uh, we'll go from there. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 10. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, 
by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. It is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith, being trained in the words of the faith, and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The staying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on a living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially to those who believe. Now he starts off in verse 1 saying, there will be people who leave the faith. You see that there. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. People will say and profess Christ and say, I'm with you. I'm in the church for a season. And then they won't be. You'll turn around and they're not in church. They're not with you any longer. Just Hunt County, does that sound familiar? Just think about your context. Think about our context. They will profess Christ and be with us for a while. And then they'll leave. Be gone. Away from the church. There will be a season where they're with you. And then they have no regard for it anymore. And it says that we're not, we're not given who will leave. We're not giving um, the timeline for leaving necessarily. But we are given this very important thing. How they will leave. How will they leave? And how they will leave is that they will be deceived. They will be lied to. They will be deceived and lied to concerning the gospel. They will trade faith in the unseen. Think last week, this righteousness outside of ourselves. They will trade that for something they can do, something that they can see. They will forfeit the supernatural by tainting it with their own natural works. They will reduce the complexity and beauty of the gospel for manageable rules and laws. They'll trade, and they'll be deceived into doing that. By who? Here's the the thing I want you to get about deception. We have to get this before we go on. Uh, Being deceived is, I think some of you, this is what I think, maybe you're thinking uh, a deceiver. I'll see a deceiver coming, and I'll know to steer clear. Because uh, people who are deceptive have jacked up yellow teeth. They have a crazy hat and they wear weird clothes. And they try and get everybody to go out in the pasture and handle snakes and drink strychnine. That's what deceivers do. But that's not deception. You see, that, that's not being deceived. You see that coming, right? Being deceived, you don't see it coming. It's subtle. And so, 
What we're talking about today and what, we'll, what will play out over the next few minutes is subtle deception among us and among our brethren who we live around who profess Christ. Think that way. Deception is not glaring. These aren't crazy, weird people that deceive. They're among us. And it's subtle. Deception. It's not deception if it's not subtle. If you see it coming, it's not deception. You haven't been deceived. Do you see that? Do you understand? So, this is what I want to do. I want to examine what the writer is talking about here. We're going to examine the liars, the deceivers. And then we're going to look at the lie. And then we're going to swim in the ocean. We're going to, we're going to look, at the, look at the liars. And then we're going to look at the lie. And then we're going to swim in the ocean. So let's look, first of all, at verse 2. And let's look at this liar. And we're going to look at two things about these liars. They are a man-centered, self-denying for the sake of their own righteousness. They're adding to the saving work of Jesus, which Paul says in verse 7 is silly because God created everything. But there's two things specific about these liars that he mentions here that we need to unpack. And the number one thing that he says is that they're insincere. They are insincere. What does that mean? The insincerity of a liar. Here's what insincerity is. Insincerity is, I have something to hide from you. I'm not going to fully disclose everything to you. I'm insincere. If you really knew my motives, then what I teach would be impure. If I have impure motives. Here's an example of what insincerity is not. Here is sincerity. And those of you that were with us a couple of years ago, maybe you've heard of this, heard this story or heard Ben speak it or somebody else. Uh, when Ben and Christy came back from sabbatical, you saw sincerity. You saw Ben and you heard him sit here and say that his marriage and the gospel were at stake. And that they were going to get help for the sake of their marriage and for the sake of the gospel. Now listen, this is why his motives were pure. This is why you know that was sincere. There was no payoff for he and Christy to do that. Do you see that? The, the motive for doing that has no, no real payoff, no short-term payoff for them to do that. He laid his motives bare. And his motives were the gospel via his marriage. And that in turn affected our marriages. Do you see that? That's sincerity, transparency. And an insincere teacher-preacher will not be transparent. They will preach in a manner and teach in a manner where they really only go a few places. And they only let you see in and peer into a few places. But listen, don't ask me about my finances. Don't ask me about my marriage. You just assume that it's good and don't worry about it. That breeds insincerity in preaching. When you're not transparent. Insincerity. One of the things that comes from sincerity is direct talk. And many of you, we've had this conversation before, is that from this pulpit and in our conversations and in your small group, you are discovering the beauty and the difficulty in directly talking to one another. And to not beating around the bush about issues. 
Like James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And God is raising up a generation of families who our yes is yes and our no is no. And we're not going to beat around the bush with oaths and swearing. We're going to shoot straight about it and talk directly. Sincerity breeds direct talk. And so if you're hearing from head of your household, your small group shepherd, if you're not hearing direct talk at all, that's, there's some insincerity there. Whether intentional or not, sincerity will produce a direct talk. So cross point here, if you're hearing this direct talk and it's new and it's a little alarming, it is. It, we're not used to speaking directly about the issue. We like to dance around. Why? Because it feels better. It feels better if you'll flower it up a little bit before you punch me in the nose. That feels better. But it's not sincere. It's insincere to dance around the issue. It's sincere to say, look, my motives are right here. I, I'm being completely transparent with you and I'm going to be direct. That's what you listen for when you're listening for an insincere liar. The next thing about the liar is the seared conscience. You, hear, you see it right here in verse 2. Through insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. What does that mean to be seared? When you put a steak on the grill, you sear it so that you can keep some things in. The juice is in. You burn it. It's burned. on the base, uh, Basically burned so that things won't get out. It's seared. It's tough. You, you burn the edge of it. It's crusty. Right? And what... What the writer is saying here is their hearts have been seared, have been burned, and they're not going to hear and let truth in. They're going to not be able to move past what they think and what they feel. Uh, a seared conscience says a lot of times, this is what I believe. This is what I think. This is what I feel. Without the balance and letting absolute truth speak into that. Here's how I would illustrate that. A heart that's been cauterized, been seared, is one that says, this is the truth that I know based on my experience. This is things that I've experienced. I know these to be true because I walked in them, I saw them, I felt them, whether physically or emotionally. I experienced this. I know this to be true. This happened to me. I've seen it. And then there's absolute truth of Scripture. And a seared conscience says, this wins. What I experience wins. What I have experienced, the truth that I know, what I know to be true based on what I've seen with my eyes and what I've felt and what I feel, beats out what I may not know. Do you see that? I know the Bible has absolute truth, but... I'm, I'm going to err on the side of what I, what I know to be true based on my experience. Seared conscience. A conscience that's not seared says, whether I have experienced it or not, whether I've seen it, whether I even like it or feel it, it's true. You see that? A seared conscience says, nah, what I experience wins. Over what I see here in the scriptures. And a preacher and a teacher where you hear experience elevated over rich, deep doctrines of this sweet story that we have, 
That's somebody with a seared conscience. And a seared conscience will say too, I mean, there's a lot of doctrines in here. Oh, I just don't know how to lead people through them. A seared conscience will say, I would rather teach them what I've experienced because I speak better about it. I, I'm afraid to get up there and sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. And I would hate for them to think I just learned it last week. That's insincerity. And that's a seared conscience. I'll be more confident to preach from what I've seen and what I know. I don't want to talk about things that I still, man, I still don't know. How many times have you heard that? You better hear that from me. You better hear that from Ben. You better hear that from Steve and Scott. You better hear that from your small group leader when occasionally they go, man, this thing's big. And I don't have my head wrapped around it. And that's okay. We're going to go together and we're going to keep swimming in this doctrine. And nobody has it figured out. It's okay. We're going to help each other embrace it, these truths about the gospel. Seared conscience. Listen for the seared conscience. Seared conscience will say things like, well, I know what the Bible says, but I know what the, I know, I know, I see it there, but that should not be a phrase in our vocabulary at all. Okay, I see it, but you're going right back to your experience. That's not what I feel. That's not what I experience. A seared conscience will say, I know those verses in the Bible, and I know that doctrine is something some people believe. I just don't see it. I just don't. I don't see it. I don't agree. I know it's in there, but I'm going to choose to disagree. Seared conscience. A seared conscience, this is, this is also the thing that will feed this seared conscience that will deceive and make people leave. Remember what he says in verse 1. This is from demonic spirits among us through a liar and a seared conscience. So a lot at stake. The stakes are high this morning. A seared conscience will come to conclusions about the truth on their own. And nobody else speaks into it. Nobody else speaks into it. There's no plurality. The design that we have in Scripture is that the church is led by a plurality of, of men. That there is plurality is wise. That men peer in, in Proverbs. Men peer into your life. No lone rangers. And so if you're coming to conclusions about these truths on your own, the only thing you have to balance that with is your experience. Do you see how you're right back? If all you have is your experience and the Word, and you don't have anybody else informing that, any other believers informing that, you're left with your experience and what you're reading in the Bible. And we need each other to inform it in plurality. Otherwise, we are opening ourselves up to sear our own conscience with what we believe, what we see, and what we think, and what we feel. Not what it says. Do you see that? Hear the warning, cross point. Insincere lying and a seared conscience. That's the liar. Now let's look at the lie. Verse 3. Those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Here's a key word. Underline know. Believe and know. Believe and know. People who believe and know aren't being deceived by this. And we'll get to that in a minute. But here is the lie. Two things about this lie. It's focused on the seen, not the unseen. Okay? Here's what these folks are saying. They're saying, 
Look, profess Christ, there is no indication that these people are crazy. There's no indication that these people are outside the church. They're among the church. They're among those who profess Christ. So they're saying, profess Christ, yeah. But don't eat chicken and don't take a wife. Surely there's got to be something we can do. I mean, I, I believe Jesus is Savior of all. But we got to be able to do something. we got to play a part in this somehow. There's got to be something I can see myself doing that keeps me in here. Keeps me in the game. Keeps me committed. So, here's the deal. Let's, hey, let's don't eat chicken and don't get married. We'll deny ourselves marriage and we'll deny ourselves chicken. Really good chicken. We'll deny ourselves these things so that surely we'll earn something here. We'll play a part in this righteousness somehow. Which goes back to the feeling. They want to feel like they're somehow engaging in a part of this righteousness so they focus on what's seen. What is something tangible I can get my hands around? What, what's something tangible I can do? Focused on the seen and not the unseen. Turn to Hebrews 11 quickly. Just a quick definition here to inform this. You, many of you probably have this memorized. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Now, faith... Our faith, this gospel, the faith that we have in this gospel, is the assurance of things hoped for. Conviction of things, what? Not seen. For by it, people of old received their condemnation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Faith is the unseen. Faith is Romans 3 through 5 that we read last week. This righteousness outside of ourselves that I can't see. I can't do. I'm unable to conjure anything up to take part in it. And Romans 3 through 5 informed that last week. That this righteousness is outside of ourselves. In fact, our fumbles and our sin and our unrighteousness put his righteousness on display even more. Totally backwards from what these people are saying. It's totally backwards from what insincere, lying deceivers will say. And those insincere liars, remember, and deceivers are not crazy people. It's subtle. And we have to be careful who we're listening to when it comes to the gospel. It's a subtle move to give me something I can see. And that's the lie. Give me something I can see with my eyes. Don't let your hope gravitate to what can be seen. Keep your hope in the unseen. Faith in the God that created everything that is visible. Remember Romans 4, 5. Remember this. Last week. I love this verse. We're going to read it at the end today. This is what we're going to finish with. Romans 4, 5 that Ben camped out last week. To the one who does not work. Here, the one who does not try and fabricate and manufacture things seen. To play part in the righteousness to the one that doesn't do that, who doesn't work, what? But trusts him who justifies the ungodly. Jesus, that's it. His faith is counted to him as righteousness. Stop working. Stop trying to conjure up the scene. The scene is fruit from a people who are counted righteous and know it. They know it. It's been informed. Remember, 
First uh, Timothy four. Remember right here in verse three. For who forbid marriage require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know. Professing, but I'm not just professing. I know some things about this gospel. I know Romans 4, 5. I know. I th- I've thought through it, and it wasn't easy, but I know some things. I'm not just professing. I know some things about the gospel. And I know Romans 4, 5 says, to the one who doesn't work and trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith counted as righteous. That's assurance. Not that I did something at six years old. Assurance is knowing, knowing that only Jesus is my righteousness. That's assurance. Knowing it and believing it together. The second thing about this lie, this lie of uh, don't eat chicken and don't get married. Now, I'm just saying chicken. This is probably some sort of meat. I'm just saying chicken because chicken gets a bad rap uh, around here. So, I like chicken. I'd hate to deny myself good chicken and deny myself marriage because I made, it made me feel good about righteousness. Uh, it's called asceticism, the fancy word for it. It's denying myself something so that I feel better about my own righteousness. Paul's saying No. Here's the thing, the second thing about this lie. The first thing is that it's focused on the scene. The second thing, I love what Calvin says about this. He says what these people are trying to pull off, they're trying to pull off a gospel of trifling summations. That's the title of the message, trifling summations. And I love how these old dead guys talk. I wish I talked like that more. Trifling summations. I didn't even have that word trifling in my vocabulary till this past few months. Trifling some Here's what trifling is. Trifling is only a portion that devalues the whole. Hear it again. It's only a portion, a small portion that you take that devalues the whole. And that's what these folks are doing. They're reducing the gospel to this. Profess Jesus. Don't eat chicken. Don't take a wife. That's what it's all about right there. I, I got it. Y- y'all want to know what it's all about? It's all about that. Profess Jesus, don't eat chicken, don't get married. Boom. Which is a trifling summation that devalues the story that we have. It's a little bitty portion of the gospel. Profess Jesus. And then it's just trifling. It's reducing it to these trifling little phrases. Reducing it to something I can, I can say, what is this faith? What is this gospel? What is this Genesis to Revelation story? What is it? Well, it's, it's this right here. This, this is what it's all about. Right here. And that's what they're trying to do. I think really because it's easier. It's hard to go on this journey and embrace doctrine. And go to your small group on Thursday night and talk more about it. And know that it's going to impact Tuesday and Thursday and Friday. Simple sometimes, but it's not easy. This is not an easy thing. This is not easy. And I think we all, don't, don't be judgmental standing there thinking, sitting there thinking, well, I don't do that. You know and I both know when we put our head on the pillow at night, we're wondering, what's this really all about? What is it really all about? I would love to be able just to know be able to say in a couple sentences what this is all about. And we need to be okay with not doing that. 
That's what it's all about. That's a statement that I have heard over and over. I've used it. Uh, You see somebody who uh, is saved or they come to faith and they're crying. They're emotional. Everyone's excited. And that's the context I see it the most. Hey, man, right there, that's what it's all about. While that is beautiful, while that is something to rejoice and worship over when God calls somebody and lifts the scales of their eyes to his saving grace. Listen, that's not what it's all about. It's all about a story that is too big for us to find the bottom of. It's all about his glory that we won't know till he comes back. There's nothing that you can say, man, that's what it's all about. Even baptism, beautiful sacrament given to us, given to the church. Is it beautiful? Yes. Is it worship? Yes. But to see someone baptized or to see a lot of people baptized and say, man, that's what it's all about. Don't do that. Don't sum up this gospel. We, we, don't, we don't need to. We don't really want to. When I, when I think about that's what it's all about, I think about seventh grade, satellite roller rink. And at the end of the skating session before they closed, everybody got out in the middle. And they started playing this corny song. And uh, you put your right hand in, put your right hand out. You put your right hand in and you shake it all about. You do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. And that's the first and the last time I will dance up here. (laughs) But what that does is it makes everybody that has skated that day feel good about the fact that they can do this thing. You can do it. You can do it. Everybody, come on, you can do it. Even on roller skates, you can put your right hand in, put your right hand out. Put your right hand in and shake it all about. You do the hokey pokey, you turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. And everybody leaves knowing what? We did the hokey pokey. I can do it. And a gospel that sums up the gospel and phrases like, that's what it's all about, will breed a people who are looking for the next dance. Because, folks, the hokey pokey gets old. (laughs) I don't want to do the hokey pokey all day. And if that's it, if we're trying to sum it up so that people, and we can reduce this thing to decisions or just baptisms, that's going to produce a people who are saying, man, well, we don't drink. Well, we don't do anything on Sunday afternoon. Okay, well, that's good. Well, we don't fill in the blank. Turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. Don't do that. We cannot do that. Do not reduce and sum up this gospel to what you can do. The hokey pokey will get old. And listen, this will produce a church. If if this is the gospel that we're preaching, that profess Jesus, but then make sure you do a few things, if we ever... Preach that, and it will be subtle. Listen, it's a demonic influence that's subtle in our churches. 
If we do that, it will produce a people who are very busy trying to dance. They're very busy trying to dance. And what happens when the hokey pokey gets old? Well, the Macarena comes along. Or something else. Whatever comes down the Christian subculture pipe. Who wrote the next book? Well, that's what we'll go through. Well, who wrote? Who's, who's preaching really cool that a bunch of people are listening to? Let's listen to him. And so you have this thing of, well, we're not. We've got that down. Now what else do we do? Now what else do we do? Hokey pokey's getting old. What else do we do? Now we don't have that gospel so let's don't preach it we don't have a gospel that can be summed up and that's what it's all about so what do we do with all this this is what we do we swim in the ocean we swim in the ocean that is this long beautiful rich deep story ben said it last week he read three chapters he stood right here and read just read three chapters of scripture and why? Because we're used to sound bites reducing. That's what it's all about. Mm, give me something I can take with me to help me this afternoon and tomorrow. But that's not the gospel we have. We have a full, rich story of narratives and prophecy and poetry and revelation and gospels and stories. And we have a big story. We're not going to reduce it. Michael Horton says this. I love this quote. The gospel is so rich, so deep, it's like an ocean that you swim in. You never touch the bottom. You never reach the edge of it. You can't get to the shoreline. You just swim around in it for the rest of your life as a Christian. And yet it's so easy to get into, a child can understand it. It's an amazing thing, this gospel. It's like an ocean. That you're swimming around in. I don't profess Jesus, get the gospel, and then move on. My eyes are opened and then I start swimming. And all these good doctrines. Look back at 1 Timothy 4. Look at verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers. What things? Good doctrine. If you put these things before the brothers. Don't put up with anybody summing up your gospel in trifling manner. Do not put up with anybody using self-denial as their righteousness. Don't put up with it. Call it out. Gentleness and respect. Don't put up with it. You need to not put up with people who are not teaching and preaching doctrine. Here's the difference. It's knowledge. People need to know me and understand me. And they will know that if you teach them the doctrines and the implications of this gospel. So we're going to swim in these doctrines. And it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. Doctrine is this. Doctrine is particulars. That's what it is. When you, when you talk about doctrine, there are principles that we believe and live by. There, there are particulars of faith. But our culture has a real disdain for doctrine. We live in a culture, and a Christian subculture, that really has a bad taste in its mouth when you say doctrine. When you say any kind of doctrine, especially predestination. I said it. Election. Propitiation. Substitutionary atonement. Man, you're getting crazy now. You're talking about stuff people don't want to listen to. You're... 
You're not giving them anything to dance to. You're not showing them how to dance. You're just talking about stuff that... And by the way, people won't sit and listen to a sermon for more than 20 minutes. You need to give them something to motivate them. Al Mohler said, there is no Christianity in general. There is no Christianity in general. Faith in some experience, void of theological or biblical content, no matter how powerful it seems, is not Christianity. Listen to that again. Listen. Faith in some experience, void of theological or biblical content, no matter how powerful it seems, is not Christianity. Void of doctrine, void of the ocean, void of particulars, Christianity in general, it's not Christianity. Those called to Christianity in general may not believe anything in particular. You hear that? If, if we're believing, profess Jesus, and you know what? Everything else will just sort it out. Let's love each other. And then let's eat together. That's good enough. That Christianity will believe nothing in particular. Nothing in particular. This ambiguous amoeba that says Christian. And without particulars, the subtle deceiver will come in. And people will leave the faith over it. You just might have a county full of people who profess to be Christians and nobody goes to church. Where would that happen? No doctrine. No particulars. No particulars to keep them, to hang on to. So I don't believe anything in particular. I just believe Jesus. Cool, man. Me too. Go fishing? Bumper sticker Christianity. Real men love Jesus. That's what it's all about. I saw this on a t-shirt and I've seen it on a bumper sticker. Christ is life. The rest is just details. Which that speaks to where our culture is. And that speaks to where we are. Look, get Jesus, man. If you got Jesus, you're good. Don't worry about the details. Don't worry about the particulars. Just love Jesus with all your heart. Just love him. Profess him. Talk about him. Share him. That's what it's all about. The rest, just details. And then the one I hate the most, which has nothing to do with this sermon. I just hate it. Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. So we love to reduce. And we have a disdain for doctrine, the particulars. We need particulars. Listen. To, listen to these passages. I'm just going to read a few of these passages. I want you to listen to what Paul, how he talks about this gospel. In Ephesians 3, chapter 7. I mean, verse 7. Write that down. Ephesians 3, 7. Listen to what he says. Listen to me. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. He's talking about the gospel which was given to me by the working of his power, not mine. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, very aware of his unrighteousness, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, which you could insert, to preach to all nations. Preach this, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Here, ocean. I'm here to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Here, big ocean. That's what we preach. We preach this big ocean. Unsearchable riches of Christ. 
And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery that's hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, listen, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Where else are people going to learn to swim in the ocean? Here. This is where you get your particulars. In church. Among the church. That's where you get the particulars. But if all we do is profess Christ, profess Christ, and that's what we push, profess Christ, profess Christ, with no particulars, no doctrine, then what we end up with is having to motivate people. Romans 16, 17, listen to this. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Avoid people who are creating obstacles and making this more difficult. Who are making this confusing. Avoid those people. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. Here, seared conscience, insincere. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of who? The naive. Verse 18, the naive. Write that word down, naive. Here's the definition of naive. I always thought, when I first thought about naive, I just think blonde. I'm sorry, you just, but it's, it's more than that. It's more than that. Naive is not just ignorant. This is what naive is, or inexperienced. This is, listen, this is the definition. Weak, unaffected, and rejecting sophistication. Weak, unaffected, and rejecting anything sophisticated or complicated. Cross point. Don't be naive. Let's not be weak, unaffected people who reject anything sophisticated in the gospel, who reject anything complicated and hard to think through. Let's embrace the ocean. Let's swim in it and let's embrace. Let's don't be weak and unaffected and and reject anything that's sophisticated because then I can't say that's what it's all about and I can't do the hokey pokey. And I don't feel good about myself if I don't do the hokey pokey because I'm pretty good at it. Naive. That's weak and unaffected. Well, this is what happens when we preach a gospel of trifling summations that are focused on the seen and not the unseen. This is what happens. If that's what we're doing, if we decide, look, we we really need to preach so that people will make a profession because that's what it's all about. If we do that, if that is driving what we do and driving our preaching and teaching and that we do our best to sum up and reduce the gospel to quippy phrases so that people will make a decision and profess Jesus. If profession is driving this train and not knowledge, not understanding, this is what happens. You have a church full of people who need to be motivated next week. Because they're not going to stay committed to this profession unless you motivate them. And here's the opposite. Give them knowledge. Teach them doctrine. Give them some particulars. And those particulars, that knowledge, that good doctrine will transform them. No need for a motivational speech. You see that? Look, I love Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ was dead and then buried and then rose again. 
you will be saved. I love that. I believe that. But that verse, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is crucified, buried, risen, you will be saved. That verse has been taken out of context. The whole chapter 9, he's talking about what we learned last week in Romans 4. It's almost like he's paraphrasing chapter 4. Not your righteousness, his. That phrase, if you confess with your mouth, believe that Jesus, you'll be saved. That phrase, the emphasis, the drive there is that Paul is saying, he's talking to the Gentiles and he's saying, this is for you too. If you confess, you will be saved. If you believe in your heart, this is for you too. This is not a statement by Paul like this. That's what it's all about then we would have no need for the rest of the New Testament, really. No more doctrine, no more implications, no more particulars. He's not telling them, just do that, that's what it's all about, and we're good, I'm on to the next city. That's not what he's saying in that that verse. But that's what we've made him say in that verse. We've reduced it to that. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, this is for all nations. This gospel is bigger than the Jewish nation anymore. It's, It's going out. His glory and his salvation is going to all nations. So you you people who didn't think this was for you, this is not about circumcision anymore. It's about confession. Not not about what you do anymore. It's about what you believe in your heart and you know. That is the thrust of that message, that passage. And then you have two chapters later, Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How are you transformed? You know this verse. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What do you know? What's the truth about God that you know to be true? What are the particulars and the implications that you know to be true about this gospel? And and are they winning over experience and what you experience? Don't take things out of context. Don't reduce this gospel. Don't go to that's what it's all about. I don't know where I saw this quote, and I've tried to find out who to give credit to, but I just can't. Maybe some of y'all know. I've seen it on t-shirts, and I've seen it in some other places, but great truth rarely springs from great passion. But great passion always springs from great truth. And you've see, we've seen that in Scripture time and again. Zeal without knowledge gets you in trouble. Great Truth rarely will come from just being passionate about something. Great truth will rarely come from motivational speeches. Great truth will rarely come from a church that says, believe in Jesus, and then this next week, let's get some more people to believe in Jesus. That's what it's all about. Great truth will rarely come from that. But great passion, great transformation will always come from us knowing great truths. And this takes work. Look again at verse 6. Swimming in this ocean takes work. Verse 6, 1 Timothy 4. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Being, underline that, trained. Listen to all the working words. The training Being trained in what? The words of faith and good doctrine. 
that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, well, you, you look good now if you train your body. But if you'll train your heart and your mind, that godliness is of value in every way because it holds a promise not just for this life, but the life to come. Verse 10, for to this end, what? We toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially to those who believe. He is not saying here, work at being better. He's not feeding the good boy, bad boy theology. He's saying, toil and strive and work at knowing and understanding the doctrines and implications of the full counsel of Scripture. And that takes work. And you will toil and you will strive not to be better, but I will toil and I will strive to know more about this gospel and this God. And that will transform me. No need for motivational speech. Good friend of mine that I work with, Lance, his, um, his mother-in-law is the sweetest lady. Uh, he and I both were blessed with great in-laws and he especially, his mother-in-law is just this wonderful matriarch lots of grandkids lots of children and they all call her blessed um, the son-in-laws and the sister-in-laws they all love her and she was she passed out this past spring and they didn't know why they found this massive brain tumor and when they went to the doctor to talk about what they had found all the kids came even Lance was there her son-in-law he came and they're sitting around talking with these doctors first second opinion and as they're, as they're talking, uh, the doctor explains how complicated this tumor is. And given the pros and the cons and what you can expect and what is good and the bad and the ugly. And then he went into this extensive treatment. A one 10-hour surgery and then maybe a 14-hour surgery this fall. Two surgeries to correct it. Big problem. Big problem. And a very sophisticated solution. And it would seem so ridiculous for Lance, after they've heard all that, for him to stand up and say, listen, Doc, thanks. Everybody listen. Can, can you give her a shot and let us be on our way? Can you just, come on, can you rub some lotion on her and just get out some antiseptic? Surely it's not that complicated. You're, you're a doctor. Can you give her a shot so we can get back to our life? And if this gospel is not an ocean of doctrine and good implications in particulars, that's how you will come, and that's how I will come to the preaching and to the worship. Man, I wish he'd just give me a shot. <laughs> Let me get back to my life. Give me, a little, give me a little motivation. Get back to my life Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That's not how we come to this gospel. That's not this gospel. This gospel is full, big, rich ocean that we swim in. And it takes work. Here's how we'll end. We're going to look next week more at this toiling and this striving. And then Paul even goes on in the rest of this chapter. And he turns it up a notch. And this is who he turns it up a notch on. Elders, deacons, heads of household. He turns it up a notch. On the head of household, on the deacon and the elder. Because you understand, in, ver in chapter 3, 
We got the qualifications for the elder and the deacon. And now he's gone in to get the gospel right. So here's my question. Do you find yourself missing the motivational speeches on Sunday? Really, I mean, be honest with yourself. And ask your question, yourself this question today over lunch. Are there times where I just really miss the motivational speech? I just need something to help me get through Monday. And it's these 45-minute long sermons are really just kind of wearing me out. You find yourself saying that? Remember what verse 1 said. The Spirit expressly says that many will leave because they'll be deceived by demonic teaching. Not wearing a crazy hat and jacked up teeth, but among us. Among us. They're going to wear these kind of shirts, maybe even untucked. They're going to wear jeans and shoes. If, if you don't have good doctrine and you'll leave. You find yourself getting real tired swimming. You find yourself just getting tired of another doctrine to have to kind of wrap your head and your heart around. Uh, I would say, based on my experience this last year and a half, and in talking with Scott Sutton, that most of the time when we hear people who are just tired, listen, nine out of ten I'm saying, people who are just tired of having to, I just don't, this discussion is just hard. These things you're preaching on are difficult. I'm not smart. I'm not a reader. I don't. Those people are, are usually not in a small group. They're trying to do it alone. So if you find yourself missing the motivational speech, if you find yourself, man, this is difficult. You weren't meant to go with this alone. You weren't meant to embrace and understand this gospel alone. If you're not in a small group, man, that's, that's where the goods are. That's where the implications and the discussion and the understanding of these doctrines that we're preaching, they come from so that you can settle and so that you can rest in them and know them. And hopefully, the people that's being built are people who say, this is what's true, and I don't feel that way all the time, but I'm standing on what I know. And that goes up when in plurality, you talk about it, and you study it, and you lose sleep over it. And it, and it produces a people, I pray, who work and toil and sw- strive and swim and remember and are reminding each other this, to the one who does not do the hokey pokey, but trust in Jesus, his faith is counted to him as righteous. To the one who does not work, do the hokey pokey, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so we rest in that. And we find good rest in good doctrine. Y'all pray with me. Lord, help us to uh, swim this week. To maybe consider and embrace some things that we aren't willing to embrace or think about because of what we've experienced. God, I pray that you would guard the elders of Crosspoint from ever getting into the same rut with doctrines that we're embracing. Spirit, divide our hearts like a two-edged sword with your word so that we continually teach good doctrine so that salvation comes, so that 
There is no deception. So that there is no lying. There is no insincerity. And God, I pray that you will keep our conscience from being numb and seared. Protect us by your Holy Spirit. Protect us with knowledge of good implications and particulars. And help us become a people who believe in things in particular. And I pray, God, that you will receive glory from that, that your light would shine, that many people would be saved because of it. And that you would call people to Christ and trust him only. Help us get it right and keep it right and walk together in it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As we come to the supper, this, this is a good reminder I, I told Ben last week, I thought, you know, th- that Romans 3 through 5, I kind of felt like we probably ought to do that every five weeks. <laughs> yeah, just re-preach that. I need it. I need to be reminded. Right, righteousness outside of myself. And, and I don't know why it would be a bad idea to just maybe read Romans 3 through 10 every five weeks <laughs> so that we're reminded. But we don't necessarily have to do that, and this is why, because this supper serves in some way as our reminder to remind God and he reminds us this righteousness is outside of ourselves. And if you come to this table today with some trepidation wondering if you're righteous enough to eat it, but you're saying, I know that Jesus is my righteousness, but I messed up. Am my weak? I stubbed my toe all week long. But you're trusting Jesus as your righteousness right now? Eat and drink. Eat. But if you're here and you say, you know, I don't know. There has got to be something, some part I play in this. And I don't know if it's just Jesus. I think it's probably just Jesus. And there could be other things that are true. There could be other things that will get me to heaven. This supper is not for you if you think that. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. My body broken for you. Just like this bread is broken, my body was broken for you. You don't have righteousness. I'm counting it via my body and this bread. And then he took a cup. And when he had given things, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Blood of the covenant poured out for many. Take and drink. We're about to take our offertory, which is a part of our worship. So will you pray with me as we enter into this next uh, portion of our worship? Father, we give not to earn anything. We give not to do anything, but as a response to who you are, knowing that you own everything and that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. We are giving uh, out of worship. And that's what we do now in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all be seated for just a second. I hope that the hokey pokey stuff is not just, you come off just silly. Paul uses that word in verse 7. Is don't, don't believe in silliness. Don't believe in myths. 
we're surrounded by counties who think the church is pretty silly. Because we, and I say we because that's me too, we've rolled out a hokey pokey gospel in front of them. And I don't want to be that. And I want people to know and embrace. I want his gospel to be put on display in marriages and in small groups and in preaching. So that, that's the heart of that today. Not just to be silly or funny. Um, I'm owning that. Um, I want to share one announcement with you. Krista Roberts, daughter of Stephen Laurie, uh, sister of Stephanie, they're in Kazakhstan. And um, Krista led a team for I Go Global where I work, and she led a team. She did a wonderful job leading a team over there uh, this past summer. And she is staying. She didn't come home with that team. She's staying over there to help Stephanie. Jake's going to be gone a good bit this fall, traveling out of country. And, um, and I just want to say, she's going to be staying there, and we need to round up about $1,500 to keep her there until October. She raised funds to be there this summer. One of the really cool things is Igo had some money left over to keep her there for a while, but we still need about $1,500 more that we need to round up in order to keep her there. And this is what she's doing. I want you to hear this clearly. Krista's not over there babysitting only. Uh, Jake is putting her to work. She is with our team. She was intentional to be on that team and to lead out in task and in ministry that Jake and Steph gave her. She's not just baby. Sure, that's part of it. She will help Steph while Jake's gone. But she's also on that team. So know that Krista has proven herself to be intentional and missional for the sake of the gospel. And she's there helping one of our families. We've sent her there. Let's keep her there. Okay? That's what this is. If you'd like to give to that to keep her there, uh, you can write a check. And don't put her name on it. But on the envelope, just put Kazakhstan Mission. And we'll get that to her. Around. We probably need to do that in the next week or two. Okay, 1500 bucks is the goal to keep her there till October. We ought to be able to knock that out. And I want her to be there and not have to worry about provision of being there and being obedient. And I want Jake not have to worry about it. So that's what that is, putting it before the body so that we can raise up and do that. Y'all stand with me. I'm going to dismiss this in prayer. Father, thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for uh, craftsmen that you've given the church to lead us in this singing portion. Thank you for the craftsmen that you've given us in these deacons. I pray that you would uh, affirm in them a love for doctrine, a love for truth, and that they would teach it in their deaconing and their small group shepherds and uh, in our worship leading, that we would be people who would embrace truth over experience. And I pray that that would be uh, what gives you glory and that we wouldn't... Try and step in and rob it and be a part of it. Father, we need your help to understand you and your gospel. And uh, I pray that we swim well this week. In Jesus' name, amen.